0: Thank you. My name's Dan and you're listening to the first ever English Faculty Podcast, a weekly free download containing the best interviews, readings, news and discussions from the Cambridge Faculty of English. Thanks for taking the time to download. Each week this podcast will include an interview with a member of the Faculty about a lecture series that they're currently giving. This week it will be the turn of Rob McFarlane who will be talking to us about his lecture series Landscapes of British and Irish Literature Since 1945. But before we get there, we're going to have a reading of a piece of creative writing done by a student from the faculty. This piece is called The White Space, and it's a collaboration between Amber Medland, a third year English student, and Andrew McFarlane. It's an extended image stream for piano and recisateur, and a series of poetic fragments written across music staves. I went to visit Amber in Trinity to record a purely spoken version of the poem. So. Listeners of the English faculty please sit back and enjoy our maiden voyage by Amber Medland and Andrew McFarlane The White Space
1: Coda We come here to rest Our bedside lamps are the warning cry from the lighthouse They call us back and we face each other in bed I can hear you smile I've been waiting for this all day. The hands of my watch have stuck, nectar drenched. But you pick up after one ring and... I hold my breath for your hello. I curl and we touch each vertebrae, each toe. You are the dots, the ticks, the solar eclipses. And we live in butterfly time the ground releases us, hand-held dandelion spores, up, aerial, interlocked acrobats, at the mercy of the air. Chagall's figures. And your voice is missed on the water among petals, soaring. How has your day been? Fine. Really? No, boring. I tried to do my laundry, and it was regurgitated, clammy on the floor, and wet sheets, and in the bath I cut my leg, and there were ribbons, ribbons of blood, and... You pick up my words like clover. Did you mean what you said about honeydew threads? Did you feel the same web when you said it? And talking to you is like being handed a jar full of fireflies. I want to be somewhere cold with you. I want to be seared in ice with you, our stencils stand stark, dark still. On the wall of a cave, we are etched in chalk and granite. I turn to the wall, and wait for you. Forest. I'm so cold. Tell me something that glitters. Tell me a forest in dark lilac snow. My fingers are frost inflamed, and we race like children on snow days and joy days, and trip in the night-stricken root maze. Hardened by centaur's hooves, tangled by bewitchment, unprepared for the dark, gasping with the force of it, ivory-hard, flint-tipped. We are surrounded by dark Spanish trees. The warmth smells your voice in my ear, words burning. You breathe in ice and adrenaline, and your laughter, unleashed, is in tatters on the brambles. And you are reckless. Puck, sprite-like, boy-man born of an acorn shell, recast from burnished clay, is action, beauty scorched, now a hunter, unhindered, hurtling now. His Ariadne is wildland elemental, cat-like, fiercely twisted, bitten-lipped, a streak of crimson laughing. And you are a red scarf flash between trees. With no even ground in sight, we trip, we freefall. And the trees are strangers. You are moving too quickly. Blinkered colt. Your horizon is darkness. And you are so sure. And with one whip, a careless flick of ink-dark eye. A lash of branch back across, too close to my lips. Too close. Where are the secret gardens? I want to hurl myself into your path. You will halt to realise me. A drum step footbeat shakes the ground of the forest, breaks the ice spun air. And all at once the world is cobweb torn. Interlude But wait, why did you say that? It should be smooth, iridescent. It should be the slice of an ice-skate prayer on snow. Not broken glass glitter, but your palm full of pearls. Tell me something that glows. But how does it feel to be chrysalis-ripped so young? Tender and green. Our beginning is written in the empty pages of my diaries. I found a ladybird in the library today and the spines were untied and it was like pomegranate seeds were sprinkled like snowdrops all blush lit stained glass everywhere and I wanted to tell you and it flew and someone said something today that reminded me of you and I had to stop them I needed to write it down you've written your name on every tree there are kernels of you scattered in fields like autumn corn and maybe we will grow old Maybe our brains will grow together, like stalactites and stalactites in the drip, drip, drop of the ages. You ask me for words, and I spin gold like fairy tale straw. I weave charms for you, and you wear them, radiant. We lie, smooth together, whalebone worn pure at the bottom of the ocean, bone flute music dancing in the waves. Convergence My room is a bear cave Hung with garlands Heavy with ritual My room is an attic Strewn with weathered pillars Old letters Spent correspondences Our space becomes Moonlight lingering with iris scent It is not a castle in the sky Not a cave Not a house A home? No, not a home No walls, no floor. Not a fantasy. There are no turrets. There is warm wood. There are smooth boards. Airtight, air warm. For years now, it has been absorbing the forest. It is quiet. Faith. We talk in riddles, I think. I want to sink my hands in your words right up to the wrists, the already caught upper lips that already know our stories openings and closings. Sometimes our talking makes my teeth ache. Talking to you is like lying on damp grass, and finding that once you get up your clothes are dripping dew, and will dry on you all day. So we wait for the warm rains. And, May-drenched, flame-quenched, the river is all about us now. You hesitate as you step from our pea-green boat. Come away. Come back to the space it is not. In the forest clearing, there is a gold-dust picnic. Hands, warm and ready, ready now. Burnt amber in the moonlight. Nocturn-edged. Betrothed to a single moonbeam. Imagine how those knights look, pale without their breastplates. The air is musk, cedar, cinnamon, saffron resonating still. Your perfume pours out, veiling the grateful trees in darkened lace. The moon, inlaid with milk and honey, blesses us with grace, with all the bounty of an orchard, apple-filled. Each moment of me is engraved with your name, with those molten syllables sealed. Your feet are bathed and your hair is filled with henna blossom. Beloved, dream musks breathe here. And all I want is time enough to behold you. You are my frame. I arabesque. Luminescent in silver. Neck, back, leg, sole, arched. Toe-pointed in moon surge. Poised. In the moments where eyes and everything, everything liquefies into ambrosia. I have to keep reminding myself to finish my sentences. Stasis You promised me you knew the way back. You left me barefoot. Hours spent standing in the shower. Perspex silence. The sleep lines of water grey. rearrange the memories. Altered. Bearable breathable, smoothing the feathers of an injured bird, underwing wounded. Beyond the watery shroud is the world, everyone's world. Breathe out, step out, as if it is already distant, a pocket of verdure in an aching season. Swan song, listening now, your name has wintered, its shape unworn on my lips. You took a scythe to each thread. The forest is filled with wolves. The fans where we lay show no no recollection of your presence. Your meadow smell grew only in the pine cones. I am afraid to call out in the silence. Mid-awakening, treading water, I forget that there is no riverbed floor, no forest floor, and I try and find the door, and I have lost it. You keep planting more pine trees, and more and more in a line they stand, and I am no wood nymph, and the U shaped door in the wilderness has grown over. I would not know how to meet your eyes. I call and say, It's me, and you say, Who? and, and, It is not me any more. And I can hear her wearing your shirt. I was thinking about the Saturday when… the Thursday. I have a shoebox full of memories. Mostly, I ignore it. Prelude. But yesterday, I picked up the phone on a whim, and you started. then, you stuttered and we laughed. I thought how very awkward how wonderful
0: that was the white space by amber medland and andrew mcfarlane and if any english student listening has a piece of creative writing that they would like to read please do not hesitate to email it to me you can find me on hermes at dj267 at cam.ac.uk that's dj267 at cam.ac.uk. I know that you're all beating a path to my door as we speak. Now it's time for the soon-to-be-regular interview with a faculty member of staff. This term, Rob McFarlane is giving a lecture series in the English faculty entitled Landscapes of British and Irish Literature since 1945. I went to visit him in his room near manual and I started by asking him to tell me what the lecture series is about.
2: Uh, so this lecture series is about the different ways in which British and Irish writing of the post-war period has, has registered and reacted to its environments. By its environments, I mean the landscapes within which, uh, against which sometimes, and often in support of which or out of love of, it was written. And these landscapes in the lecture series are as varied... Uh, the lecture series is arranged by landscape type so um, the first lecture takes place in the bombed out cityscapes of uh, post-war Britain The last occurs in Brick Lane and the east end of London but asks questions more generally about how we might write cities with their excess of text and sign and in between it ventures out into forests and cliffs and lakes and agro-industrialised farmland and, uh, uh, and other such places
0: We maybe think about the specifics of your argument later we start off by thinking about how you've come to the point where you're giving these lecture series uh, what were your formulative experiences of landscapes and landscape writing the thing that made you interested in giving these lectures in the first place
2: Well I spent, I spent a lot of my uh, life uh, I suppose out in uh, non-urban landscapes uh, climbing and um, swimming and uh, exploring in a very sort of modest way. So I have a, a personal enjoyment of these places. I've also spent a lot of time as a, uh, as a writer, I suppose an essayist and a, a, a travel writer loosely defined writing about the ways we imagine landscapes and the ways also we use land- landscapes to imagine ourselves the kind of inner topographies of our uh, of ourselves as it were. So but but in terms of actual books, there were, there's there's two that have brought brought me to this to, to Cambridge really into English. Um, one one's a book that <clears throat> I might read a little from later, which is John Baker's The Peregrine from nineteen sixty seven, which was little known but is undergoing a, a resurgence at the moment, an extraordinary document. And the other is a North American writer called Barry Lopez, who uh, wrote a book called Arctic Dreams in the mid nineteen eighties that redefined the political possibilities of non-fiction prose about nature I suppose but nature sounds like such a kind of soft and cuddly word and Lopez was writing about the Arctic which is one of the hardest and most beautiful environments on the planet.
0: So you have let's take those two interests the Arctic landscape and then the East Anglian uh, landscapes that Baker writes about. We've ended up on the Baker side, with British and Irish landscapes, how have you chosen uh, these places? Is it simply because it's where you and your uh, students happen to live, or is there something deeper that attracts you to those places?
2: Well, places? It's, part- it's partly the straitjacket of Tripos, which means that I can't um, I can't lecture to first and second years about American writing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at part two and at graduate level, I do I teach a lot more and can be a lot more expansive and kind of Atlantic hopping, and we go and look at um, the nature writing tradition in North America which is incredibly successful and vibrant and prize winning and politically influential uh, and and sort of fascinated by open spaces and vast geographies and the possibilities of intimacy in a context of epic scale whereas in Britain the uh, nature writing, tradition, writing about landscape has always tended to the, the small um, kind of micronautical exploration of the of the tiny, and that that goes all the way back to Gilbert White, the um, the famous uh, diarist of, of Selborne, whose book I think is uh, A Natural History of Sel- Selborne is the second best-selling book in English after the Bible, I mean, mm-hmm. in translation. Uh, so, um, uh, but in terms of the specific places that I lecture about in this series, well, they're really chosen by the writers I lecture about. I've organised it by terrain type, as I say, but each of those allows me to sort of bring bring writers into conversation with each other and sometimes into friction with each other and also uh, into back into contact with the, the places which they sometimes lived in and wrote about and sometimes kind of dreamed of and wrote about.
0: When you were picking those writers, picking those terrains, were there any gaps that you really wish could have been filled? I suppose were you thinking, I would have loved to have written, done a lecture on Somerset writing, I would have loved to have done one on <laughs> Scotland writing, but the text just weren't there to back it up?
2: Uh, I'd have loved to give a lecture on marshlands and bogs. Um, uh, but And actually, uh, since writing the lecture series, I have discovered there is a, a fertile and bubbling uh, <laughs> sub-literature of marsh and bog writing in um, in English. I mean, Seamus Heaney being probably the most famous example yeah. of, a, of a bog writer. So, so, you know, maybe there'll be seven lectures next year with, with, with bog on the end.
0: If we start to think about the kind of arguments that you're making, I understand you've got some text that you might read for us now, so... Listeners can get some idea of what it is like to hear you talk about these uh, pieces of writing.
2: Yeah, well, the, the central one of the, one of the middle lectures is about the idea of or the ideas of wildness, um, and particularly the idea of wildness as it's enacted or embodied in um, in wild creatures. Um, and there is a, there is a quite extraordinary tradition in particularly British literature of, of writing about encounters with what Henry Williamson calls wildlings, and actually by coincidence this morning i got sent a a new anthology called nature tales encounters with britain's wildlife which is 300 years 300 years of of exactly that kind of meeting but one of the one of the questions that writing about wild creatures asks of literature is its ability to think its way into not just into the into the skin of another person but into the brain of a of a a non-human organism um Eco-criticism, which is one of the theoretical sort of interests or backgrounds to this lecture series, asks questions of literature like: What role do microbes and climates and um, soil surfaces and geology play in the lived lives, um, human and non-human, of these texts? In other words, put much more simply: How is nature represented, and how is how is nature Valued, um, but with with, with wildness, um, there's, there's it's it's very hard to write about something like a, as you yourself know, um, because you've tried to do it or tried to assess how it has been done. It's very hard to write about something as instant, intuitive, and kind of profoundly alien in term in experiential terms to the human as a as a stooping hawk, say. Yeah. A falcon, oh, or, or a peregrine falcon.
0: Some people might think it's especially hard to do those things living in Britain as well, that Britain is not somewhere that's dominated by wild landscapes. I take it that's a view that you don't hold.
2: We, we live like, uh, like the rest of Europe. We live in a severely depleted, ecologically depleted state. We've lost 80% of our ancient woodlands and um, uh, uh, 98% of our heathland and there have been massive species loss and so on and actually part of the lecture series is partly about loss it's partly about elegy and how we remember vanished places and vanished species as well as celebrate those which uh survive and um uh but wildness is still around and baker this the, the man that i mentioned earlier who i'm about to read to you from is is kind of one of the great explorers and documenters of what what conservationists call nearby nature and what we might call the the undiscovered country of the nearby the, the local wild so this is baker and this is from his extraordinary non-fiction book the peregrine which he published in 1967 he was completely unknown uh, when he published it it's um, kind of burnt out in the literary atmosphere of that year one prizes astonished people nobody knew who this man was where he'd come from mystery still surrounds him and it's about his pursuit of of peregrine falcons, in he calls them hawks. Actually, ornithologically, inaccurately.
0: I remember I once tried to give my granddad a copy of this book because he said that he loves uh, he loves peregrine birds. He opened it, saw they were called hawks, and just refused <laughs> to read it on principle.
2: Yeah, well, Baker has his hasn't has long had his foes in the um, in the birding community as well, and there's suspicion over whether or not he actually saw everything that he describes here but these seem to be largely irrelevant questions he's created a a kind of analog uh text for the experience of hunting for and seeing the wild Uh, so this is just a uh, an account of and you'll hear the peregrine falcon called a hawk here but this is an account of of a hunting scene um man watching undercover falcon out stalking dropping hunting killing it's all set in Essex which is another of its remarkable aspect. The tide was rising in the estuary. Sleeping waders crowded the saltings. Plover were restless. I expected the hawk to drop from the sky, but he came low from inland. He was a skimming black crescent, cutting across the saltings, sending up a cloud of dunlin, dense as a swarm of bees. He drove up between them, buck shark and shoals of silver fish, threshing and plunging. With a sudden stab down, he was clear of the swirl and was chasing a solitary Dunlin up into the sky. The Dunlin seemed to come slowly back to the hawk. It passed into his dark outline and did not reappear. There was no brutality, no violence. The hawk's foot reached out and gripped and squeezed and quenched the Dunlin's heart as effortlessly as a man's finger extinguishes an insect. Languidly, Easily, the hawk glided down to an elm on the island to plume and eat his prey. So that's just—it's told almost as a series of, of journal entries, and indeed, it originated as a massive field journal work, which he then boiled down, purified, and distilled to this uh, sort of 160 odd pages of um, uh, magnesium flare prose, to borrow a phrase used by one of its early reviewers. Um, Uh, but you can see Baker struggling here with the question of how to represent the hawk and the act of killing not ethically but aesthetically really Uh, how to pace it how to give it rhythm and uh, a soundscape that operates as uh, some kind of representation of that extraordinary swift scene and he's he defamiliarizes for us one of the Things that we encounter again and again in, in, in writing about British landscape is that it's it's all it's already been said. It's been photographed, painted, um, uh, and above all uh, described so many times because we live on a you know a circumscribed space. We live in an island nation that's been continuously inhabited for many thousands of years. Um, so it's hard, You have to work hard as a stylist to spring. Um, the landscape and its inhabitants back into a kind of surprise. That's one of the things that Baker does so well. You can hear the gerunds at work, um, all those present participles, which even seem to infect the nouns, cutting across the saltings. Saltings there means the salt marsh. Sending up a cloud of dunlin, dense as a swarm of bees. Um, Everything's always transforming in Baker. Nothing ever really stays itself apart from the peregrine. So the dunlin become bees, um, and then they become shoals, Of silver fish, Um, and then that wonderful description of the of the bird being taken, and he says the dunlin seemed to come slowly back to the hawk, which is not, of course, the dynamics of the impact. There, the hawk reaches the dunlin, but he reverses, as it were, the flow of force, and the dunlin seems almost to surrender itself to the hawk's foot. Anyway, something I'll just read a, a contrasting passage. This is from a really interesting modernist poet called colin sims poet naturalist who lives up in the northeast and he's the heir to basil bunting who's another figure who turns up in the lecture series quite often and sims has been for decades obsessed with the mustelidae that's to say the otters and martins um the weasels and stoats and uh the uh, uh sparrowhawks peregrines and above uh, all the the the, the falcons. and this is a poem short poem which you'll hear as it all also really experimentalist from the late 50s, and he wrote it in in the Outer Hebrides. It's called Hesitates at the Apex. Hesitates at the Apex. Hesitates at the Apex hovers wind his acceptance until he tipples over the edge of his calculus. Stoops as an arrow will fall, the archer lifted to cross, clear, and drop vertical behind their defences. Perhaps no faster than peregrine, but far heavier, Great wings opening, creaking to platform, one death sever, one claw for the maganza's neck, left talon, rear toe. Aftershock felt in my cheek, followed by warmth as he sends dead duck down its own down. He staggers as if with the bends, but his skill and spine are strong through organs, float in the force he has to gravity, to beauty of form endorsed. And that's where the poem ends and it mean, kind of fades out really with, with an ellipsis. And you'll hear a lot of similarities a lot of differences with the, the, the Baker description. Both writers are struggling with the question of how to position the observer, that eye figure that appears once in, in that Baker passage and once um, quite a, shockingly. Aftershock felt in my cheek, says Sims. There's this transference of Wound, um, pain, impact from the, the, the meganza that actually really cops it, and um, and somehow ex- in an act of extreme sympathy or claimed sympathy to um, to Sims himself, um, but also in terms of dynamism, musculature, spatial organisation, how to um, how to represent action. So this is the question of literature as event almost itself.
0: If we try and think about some of the uh, aesthetic problems that looking at landscapes and landscape writing throw up. I'm interested in the difference between traveling a landscape and reading about it and how we might experience these two things in different ways. Um, If we encounter a piece of nature writing on a landscape, so let's say Baker's East Anglia, to what extent can we say that in reading that text we are communicating with an actual landscape isn't there always the problem that the thing we're dealing with has been transformed and been shaped by the writer so we're no longer really looking at east Anglia, anglia it is a fictional east
2: anglia uh, it certainly is a fiction in, in point of fact essex is, isn't east anglia and uh, I, uh, as i've discovered to my cost um, uh, in claiming it is to a number of essex uh, anyway i no longer do but uh, the, the question of transport well, depends wh- whether one thinks that the ambition of literature is to deliver to you to the to its reader unmodified uh, a, a, a sort of active dynamic transcript of the original experience um my feeling would be that occasionally that may be its ambition but it almost always fails um uh, i'm interested in in the different kinds of belief that different writers have had about precisely that relationship between um, text, originary landscape, and um, uh, and readerly experience. Um, uh, what I am interested in uh, is not imagining texts only as chains of signs, sort of drastically reduced semiotic structures. I'm interested in seeing how writers have tried to respond, or have unconsciously. Um, responded to the sights and the scents and the textures of the landscapes through which they moved and in which they lived. Um, I mean, to give an example, the um, the first lecture, which is about, uh, as I said, about the the, the ruins of London, um, is, is it, the, the whole new geometries of space were literally opened up by the bombs that fell on London uh, and other British cities during the Blitz. Insides of houses became outsides of houses or indeed the whole idea of inside and outside was abolished and um, uh, lit- writers began to try and work out their own new geometries of form either to reconstruct as for example Philip Larkin and other movement writers did a, a reliable quite four square poetics of interior and exterior um, building and um, and sort of ground as it were or more experimental writers started to rip open their own pentameters and, um, as it were, eviscerate uh, the standard line of the time and, um, and, and recreate their own new geometries of form. So they saw the shattered cityscapes as a kind of opportunity, as it were. And in all of those, to go back to your original question, the, the relationship is not one of pure mimesis. Um, it's to do with massively complicated um, algorithms of response.
0: To some people, I think that answer might seem problematic because there might be some things that we want nature writing to do where at least mm-hmm. some idea of mymesis is important. So if we think about the concept of ecological writing, mm-hmm. I think we, if you believe, if, you hold, if, you want, if we want to hold the kind of romantic idea that through writing about the landscapes we can a kind of a promote this cultural feeling about landscape and that ultimately we can have some kind of ecological effect on it, yeah. if we're no longer writing about real landscapes, that idea might be shot slightly.
2: No, you're, you're quite right. There's a lot vested in this question of um, what might be called the, illu- the illusion of presence. Um, there's a lot of antagonism towards the, uh, the basic idea of mimesis, particularly with regard to, um, as it were, ideas of nature, um, because it rests on an idea of essentialism, or oh, I can, I can, my, my writing will, will stand in relation to the actual... Uh, landscape, but anyway, personally, I, I, uh, I'm have a a belief in the the power of the aesthetic to shade into the ethical, by which I mean the power of the of, of encounter with beauty and uh, with with wonder as a response in reader, viewer, walker, um, watcher in the landscape uh, to um, to change the way we behave towards animals. Birds, um, uh, the whole what, what, what we call the biota, the um, the whole um, human and non-human community of of organisms. So, um, so you're quite right uh, that uh, you know, holding to that idea of at least the possibility of the illusion of presence, um, or the, the consensual belief in the illusion of presence, is remains really important. It's high stakes stuff.
0: Um. I'd like to read to you a a quote from Wordsworth's Tintin Abbey, Mm -hmm. and then maybe suggest a way in which this connects to the way we all deal with varieties of landscape writing. For I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. As you travel through different landscapes yourself, and as you encounter and study different pieces of landscape writing, do you get the sense, as Wordsworth seems to, that there is one spirit? rolling through these different places that there is one thing which it is to be a human in a landscape
2: no uh, absolutely not Um, uh, in fact perhaps more radically more radical is the idea that we are we are thought into being by the contexts we differently inhabit at different times which is to say quite the opposite of Wordsworth's essentialism an idea that landscapes might be so powerful in their influence and affect on us that as we move through different spaces different environments we are constituted differently or we think differently so we might consider certain landscapes to hold certain thoughts as they hold certain species and those thoughts are not always sort of positive i mean when i say thoughts i mean sort of cognitive abilities um, inclinations or habits um uh, and uh, the, the book i'm writing at the moment is is specifically about this, about the ways we think differently in different places Um, uh, so yeah exactly um, the opposite to Wordsworth, a much more relative position
0: and uh, my final question this is a lecture series where the texts that you're discussing are not tripos regulars Um, a student can't attend these lectures and then go into the exam, fingers crossed Andy, Goldsworthy comes up (laughs) Um, so why should a student attend these lectures, do you think?
2: Uh, well, because one good on, well, one answer to that is because every year um, three or four students come back the next year and want to write a dissertation on them. So they might find their way to a dissertation topic, and the best dissertation topics tend to be a little bit off the beaten track, um, because they might care about the world they live in, how uh, landscape shapes literature, but also more, perhaps more importantly how... Uh, literature, shapes, landscape and the ways we behave towards the world uh, about us Uh, also it's interdisciplinary as you you mentioned Andy Goldsworthy the the sculpture comes in half a lecture on land art photography, um, uh, painting from the period, uh, music Um, so it's uh, I'm I'm trying to map um, these complicated contours of response Um, but also you might bump into some of the most interesting ideas of the period Psycho-geography as a practice, um, devolution as a political history, sectarianism and its consequences, the parish and the shire as a, a unit of thought as well as a unit of territory. Um, but uh, anyway, I'm not going to do the salesman thing. Uh, of, uh, uh, but uh, um, I've I've enjoyed giving them. I've enjoyed giving them, and uh, will continue to do so, perhaps with uh, Bog on the end.
0: Thanks very much to Rob McFarlane for agreeing to be interviewed and his lecture series runs every Monday morning at 10 o'clock in Lecture Block Room 5. Further thanks to Amber Medland and most of all, thanks to all of you for listening all the way to the end. The next podcast will have another piece of creative writing and another interview from the faculty. It will be released on Monday morning. Bye-bye.